Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good evening and welcome to the History of England podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman, from the Bohemian podcast. And I'm Travis Dow, normally from the History of Germany podcast. Travis and I both spent years in Bohemia, and you can't do that without coming across evidence from events that happened some 600 years ago. Events that led to papal crusades against Bohemia, if you can imagine that. The Hussites were some of the first real Protestants to stick. No longer heretics being burnt at the stake, but now actually in the majority in their region around Bohemia, with a peace treaty from the Pope, and everything else that comes with it. This would obviously be set the stage for Martin Luther, but also, just directly, the Thirty Years' War. And then Austrian domination in Bohemia for another 300 years, Travis. Which, in turn, kind of led to a relatively strong anti-religious sentiment because of all this religious strife, which then translated into a very secular society in the First Republic of Czechoslovakia in the 1920s, and a sentiment which the communists really made use of. And evidence of all that is, like you said, apparent today when wandering around Prague, or really any other Czech city. And it's fascinating. We talk more about Hus, the Hussite Wars, and even the influence on later on Luther on Bohemican.com. Of course, we also talk about things like beer and sure. how hockey and <laughs> gymnastics movement, like so-called, led to their independence from Austria, and later allowed them to stick it to the Soviet Union on the world stage. Not to mention vampire graveyards, chandeliers made of bone, and the adventures of Travis as a ghost tour guide in Prague. I think we've almost done it all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, you know, I guess we're trying, we're trying to say here is that we stand behind our show, and that's Bohemican.com, right? So, you know, getting back to our subject matter tonight, Jan Hus didn't live in a vacuum. He also had his, his own influences, of course, just like that when he became the influence of Martin Luther some 100 years later. While Jan Hus was still a teenager, an older man in his early 50s died of a stroke in England. That man would soon be exhumed and declared a heretic. All the way across Europe, someone would take those ideas and change Europe forever. Who was that man that created a far bigger legacy than most realize? John Wycliffe. Which is why, for the Bohemian podcast, to get a better picture of one of the most important events in Czech history, period, we need to steal some time from the History of England podcast to do it right and get the whole picture. 
So obviously, if we're saying that Jan Hus was, you know, one of the most pivotal events in Czech history, well, so that by extension means that John Wycliffe was almost just as important when you were talking about Czech history. So Hus was a, a strong advocate of the Czechs, and therefore the realists, and he was influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe. Although church authorities banned many works of Wycliffe's in, in 1403, he translated the Trialogus into Czech and helped to distribute it. Hughes tried to reform the church by delineating the moral failings of the clergy, the bishops, and even the papacy from his pulpit. Yeah, so actually, so Archbishop Zbigniew Zaitz tolerated this, but even Hus as a preacher um, on, on June 24, 1405, Pope Innocent VII, however, directed the archbishop to counter Wycliffe's heretical teachings, especially the doctrine of impanation in the Eucharist. We'll get back to that. Don't worry about that. The archbishop complied by issuing a synodal decree against Wycliffe, as well as forbidding any further attacks on the clergy. In 1406, two Bohemian students brought to Prague a document bearing the seal of the University of Oxford and praising Wycliffe. Hughes proudly read the document from his pulpit. Then, in 1408, Pope Gregory XII warned Archbishop Zaich that the church in Rome had been had been informed of Wycliffe's heresies and the King Wenceslaus' sympathies for the nonconformists. In response, the king and university ordered all of Wycliffe's writings surrendered to the archdiocese chancellery and for correction. Hughes obeyed, declaring that he condemned the errors in these writings. So it might have been a little bit forced to do so uh, under coercion, right? Yeah, we talk about this a lot on, exactly, on the the Hussite episodes we do. If Again, we talk a lot about Hus. We did one or two episodes, one on the Hussite Wars, one on Jan Hus on Bohemican.com. And if you want to hear more um, in the, we also did a, a guest episode for Wittenberg to Westphalia, a, which is a podcast about the wars of the Reformation. Again, you know, we, you can't talk about any of these things without Hus. And obviously, we, we're starting to realize you can't even talk about Hus without talking about Wycliffe, right? So, you know, we don't want to get too deep into some of these rabbit holes. It's all explained elsewhere. So he became the rector of the university and enjoyed favor of the court. Wycliffe's doctrines also regained favor in Prague. So you can start seeing this, Travis, that excommunication was probably the next step here, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, in fact, on 20th of December, 1409, Alexander the Fifth issued a papal bull that empowered the archbishop to proceed against Wycliffeism in Prague. Oh wow, he actually was an ism and brought into this. Oh right? yeah, but at this point we have a movement. <laughs> okay. it's, yeah, I mean we get crusades and everything, but all copies of Wycliffe's writings were to be surrendered and his doctrines repudiated, and free preaching was discontinued. After the publication of the bull in 1410, Hus appealed to Alexander V, but in vain. The Wycliffe books and valuable manuscripts were burned, and Hus and his adherents were excommunicated by Alexander V. Hus spoke out against the indulgences. Now, that's kind of a familiar sort of thing we talk about the Reformation, right? Um, Travis, before we go any further, what are indulgences? Um, basically, there's a couple of different ways you can get them. The idea is, is that you get time off of purgatory. That simple. The thing is that you could... Um, the, the thing that they really didn't like, indulgences were, were originally and often um, seen as what you get when you go on a pilgrimage. And that kind of makes sense. Like you go on a pilgrimage to be more holy and therefore you should get time off in purgatory. And this was basically the receipt. 
saying, yep, you came here and you crawled on your hands and knees and here's your receipt. So when you get to purgatory, just show that to St. Peter. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how that works. But the problem was is when priests just started saying, oh, well, there's a shortcut. You can just pay us for indulgences. Right, and that money would go to the church, and, and that would go to the church, and that right? and that will often that obviously opens a lot of doors for corruption and that sort of thing. Okay, all right, good good to point this out. Well, as we said before, he spoke out against these indulgences, but he could not carry with him the 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 men of the university with this concept. Uh, in 1412, a dispute took place on the university, which on which this occasion, Hughes delivered his address, Johannes Hughes de Indulgences. It was taken literally from the last chapter of Wycliffe's book and his treaties. Hughes asserted that no pope or bishop had the right to take up the sword in the name of the church. He should pray for his enemies and bless those to, that curse him. Man obtains forgiveness of sins by true repentance, not of money. A few days after this, his followers burned the papal bull. Now, a, lot, a lot of burning going on. I, well, you know, this this really goes to the, to the idea of, of Scripture at this point. This is this is really what I think Hughes was saying. You know what? We've gone off track here. Let's get back on track. Pray for your enemies, right? Do not bring up the sword like we oh, did in the Crusades. I, I wonder where he got that idea. Yeah, this is from, this is basic benchmark stuff. This kind of getting things back on track from this, this sidetrack situation is a direct re response to what the teachings of Wycliffe were like. Exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, to understand, again, to understand Hus, you just have to take a step back and read some, some things about Wycliffe, and then it all kind of becomes clear. It, it really is interesting. Um, now, again, even, you know, in the, in the Hussite episodes, we did try to say that these were so popular that immediately, and in fact, you know, we also said that the kings, some of the nobility, who, by the way, a lot of the nobility weren't all Austrians, and, you know, the king was, and there was, there was a lot of, of well, not, not yet, but uh, there was a lot of back and forth between the clergy and the people, and in this case, also nobility. So, yeah, there, there were instantly some attempts at kind of making things smoother between the two opposing parties. And Wenceslas, who was the king, made efforts to kind of harmonize these opposing parties. An example is 1412. He kind of brought together the heads of his kingdom, you know, and, and basically for consultation. And at their suggestion, ordered a synod to be held at the Chesky Broad on the 2nd of February, 1412. Instead, it took place in Prague in order to kind of exclude Hus from, from participating. Now, proponents were made to, you know, they wanted to restore peace, basically, between everything that was going on in the church. And remember, they're called reformers for a reason. Even Hus did not want to break with the church. And we'll see the same thing with Wycliffe. They did, in fact, want to reform the church. You'll see the same thing much later with Martin Luther, Martin right? Martin Luther, yeah, yeah. You know, we're talking about basically monks here. These are Catholics um, yeah, Wycliffe that wanted was to fix the church. Yeah, I mean, right. exactly. So we're talking about monks and priests and that sort of thing that actually want to fix it from within. In any case, he de um, Hus declared that Bohemia should have the same freedom in regard to ecclesiastical affairs as other countries, and that his approbation and condemnation should therefore be kind of announced only with the permission of the state power. If this sounds familiar, if you've read Wycliffe, that's because it is. Wycliffe was really the guy that started to say we need a sort of separation of church and state. Not, and we're going to get back into this, but not because of freedom of religion. Like, like you know, in America we think of, um, you know, 
separation of church and state so that everyone's free to believe what they want. No, this is not the case. You still, you know, either you're a Christian or a heathen, so you can't just go off and convert to being a Muslim or Hindu or something. But, um, yeah, Wycliffe definitely believed that the king is the king for a reason and therefore the bishops should answer him to him to some degree and vice versa. So that, in that sense, kind of separation. So we're, we're several... Uh, we're several hundred years away from, of course, the uh, the Age of Enlightenment, where that was put into question, of course, right? Mm-hmm. In the American Revolution, the French Revolution, um, also the uh, English Civil Wars, you yeah. know, where this this was actually put into place yep. uh, and actually said, do we need a king? Is the king actually uh, a divine rule from God, mm-hmm. right? So this and, stuff is kind of moving and in they, forward and to those they, deals. Yeah, yes. and they had this, they, at that point, they definitely had precedence. They're like, look, we have several reformers saying this, you know, it's, these are, this is not us talking. These are wise, dead men, right? So, right. so, so yeah. Travis, you mentioned some of the writings. Let's go over some of those uh, that were obtained during these uh, these controversies. Um, of the of those of Jan Hus and the Church, of course, uh, one was particularly entitled uh, the Diaclastia, which was written in 1413 and had been more frequently quoted and admired or criticized, if you will. And yet, their first ten chapters are but of the uh, epitome of Wycliffe's work of the same title. So you can see, just take yeah. it back and forth. Th- that's the thing. Yeah, the yeah, the influence is just you know extrinsically written on the wall. It, it, you know, Huss made no um, attempt to hide this. Even when Wycliffe was declared a heretic and all that, it was yeah. There there was there's no going back. There's no um, denying that it was Wycliffean. After the most vehement opponents of Hughes had left Prague, his adherents occupied the whole ground. Hughes wrote of his treaties and preached in the neighborhood of uh, Kozi Harak. Um, and he also did it in Bethlehem Church, you know, yeah, as, as well here in Prague, yeah. which is uh, very famous, still here in parts. Mm-hmm. Bohemian Wycliffism was carried into Poland, Hungary, Croatia, and Austria. But in July 1413, a general council in Rome condemned the writings of Wycliffe and ordered them to be burned. Thus, the trial. Maybe of yeah. the century. Yep. On the fifth of June, fourteen fifteen, he was tried for the first time and was, and for that purpose was transferred to a Franciscan monastery, where he spent the last weeks of his life. Extracts from his works were all read and witnesses were heard. He refused all formulae of submission, but declared himself willing to recant if his errors should be proven to him from the Bible. Key point right here, folks. Mm-hmm. Hughes conceded his veneration of Wycliffe and said that he could only wish his soul might ha- have some time to attain unto that place where Wycliffe was. On the other hand, he denied having defended Wycliffe's doctrine of the Lord's Supper for the 45 articles. He had only opposed their summary condemnation. King Wenceslaus admonished him to deliver himself up to the mercy of the council as he did not to desire to protect a heretic. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, at that point, even King Wenceslav kind of bowed to the pressure of the church. And, a lot uh, of deals being made behind the scenes Because, here. yeah. Uh, so, so basically, yeah, exactly. The condemnation took place on the 6th of July, 1415. In the presence of the assembly of the council in the cathedral, after the high mass and liturgy, Hus was then led into the church. The bishop of Lodi delivered an oration on the duty of eradicating heresy. Some of the theses of Hus and Wycliffe and a report of his trial were then read. And in in explaining the plight of the average Christian, let's say, in Bohemia, Hus wrote, One pays for confession, for mass, for the sacrament, for indulgences, for churching a woman, for a blessing, for for burials, 
for funeral services and prayers, the very last penny which an old woman has hidden in her bundle for fear of thieves or robbery will not be saved. The villainous priest will grab it. Okay, the, heavy. This is, yeah. Heavy. Exactly. Exactly. So he was he was saying, look, you know, you're, you're picking on peasants, basically. You know, the, the poor people, according to Jesus, are the closest to heaven. You know, that's one way. That's a paraphrase. But, yeah. I mean, well, you know, they, they shall is, inherit the kingdom, right? Remember, there's one thing in, in, in the Bible that, that Jesus was saying when he was asked, can a rich man go to heaven? He says it's, it's, it's harder yeah. for a rich man to get to heaven than, go, than, than take a camel through the eye of a needle. Yeah. Right? This is, replaces and, this. Yeah. And that ex- and that definitely is almost that is like Wycliffe verbatim that is I mean he might as well have been quoting Wycliffe at that point and now in the Hussite episodes we know that it didn't end there uh, you know he was burned at the stake yeah, it didn't end well it didn't end well <laughs> for him. he burned at the stake and then just like uh, later Martin Luther his followers took it to new extremes after his death and kind of went on a on a vengeance sort of run and took over the whole country. Uh, crusades were called against against Bohemia. All the invading Catholic countries tried to invade. The Hussite Wars are fascinating. We're talking about armored wagon trains and all kinds of neat tactics. We're talking about cults in Tabor that are so cool to read about. General Zhishka. General Zhishka, exactly, which means what we're trying to say the is... The Taborites. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Worshipping naked and all that stuff. <laughs> it's good stuff. What we're trying to say is bohemican.com is where you'll find all that stuff. But we're not here just for that because all these ideas come from somewhere. So we're not, we're not going to talk about the Hussite Wars. We actually want to back up. So let's take a look at Wycliffe himself. Sure. So sure, yeah, John Wycliffe, uh, born in 1331 uh, and died in 1384 in December, was a uh, scholastic philosopher. He was a lay preacher and a theologian. He, trans- he was a translator, reformer, and university teacher at Oxford in England. His followers were known as Lollards. Yeah, well, actually, we mentioned that actually several times in all of the Hussite episodes, um, but we'll actually tell you what the Lollards are this time. Sure. Okay? <laughs> and you know, and the, the Lollard movement was a precursor to the Protestant Reformation. How big is that? It's huge. Yeah. All right. He, he was characterized as the evening star of scholasticism and the morning star of Reformation. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting because he did have one foot in each camp, and we'll go into more details. But, yeah, he did have this scholastic, um, you know, Aristotelian logic and all that kind of stuff on one side. But later in life, he no longer, he actually said, like, when, back when I was a logician. Like, he actually said, so he, was, he actually said that, basically, he's no longer, he no longer feels that way about logic and, and scholasticism. And I wouldn't necessarily put him in that camp, per se. He was trained that way. And at Oxford, you know, he might have even taught that. But yeah, Evening Star is a good way to put it. Like, he was definitely towards the end of that. You know, he was one of the earliest opponents of papal authority over secular power. In uh, assessing Wycliffe's historical role, Lacey Baldwin Smith argues that Wycliffe expounded three doctrine, doctrines that the established church recognized as major threats. All right, so if you can, you can see this right now. There's a wanted poster in the church. Mm-hmm. It, these threats would be the reason why he's wanted. Mm-hmm. Okay, number one. First was the emphasis upon the individual's interpretation of the Bible as the best guide to a moral life, as opposed to the church's emphasis on receiving its sacraments as the only way to salvation. Yeah. All right, so going back to the Bible as your foundation. That's key, and we see that in every Protestant movement after that, basically. Number two, 
Second, he insisted that holiness of an individual was more important than the official office of itself. That is, a truly pious person was morally superior to a wicked ordained cleric. Mm -hmm. Wycliffe's challenged the privileged status of the clergy, which was central to the powerful role in England. Mm -hmm. All right, big trouble. He's already setting up big problems at this point for that number two step. Number three, finally, he attacked the exorbitant luxury and pomp and circumstance of the churches and their ceremonies. Yeah, what are we talking about Luther here? Or I mean, this is it's it's funny because that that's the thing that this is repeated over and over again after this, and and. It should be noted because you know we we know that Wycliffe also had his influences. So we're not saying he invented these concepts per se, um, but he definitely had a part in making them far more mainstream. Wycliffe was also an, an early advocate of, of translation of the Bible into the common language, which was one of the big issues during the Reformation that everybody could read it, mm-hmm. right? And that you didn't have to have one person as gatekeeper of information. Exactly. Right? Yep. It's not written in code, which sure. is Latin. It's sure. You can just pick it up and, and read it, if you can read, which, honestly, but yeah. Right. And the printing press, of course, the Gutenberg Press would be helping this process out a little bit later as well, yep. right? And then, yeah. And this that's another good point, is that that's, that might be why it didn't take off the way Luther did, because Luther was at the right place at the right time. He, sure. he was able to print propaganda leaflets, literally, like that's what he did. In complete, he completed his translation directly from the Vulgate into the vernacular English in the year 1382, now known as Wycliffe's Bible. It is probable that he personally translated the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it is possible he translated the entire New Testament, while his associates translated the Old Testament. Wycliffe's Bible appears to have been completed in 1384. Yeah, and I've I've also read a couple of different takes on this. So you often hear that he translated the new... uh, First of all, you just hear Wycliffe's Bible. And if you know nothing else, you think he translated the Bible. That's that's not what happened. Um, But you do often hear that he translated the the New Testament. And then I I started reading that actually um, some scholars think that it was probably maybe just the Gospels. And then... Uh, he helped with the New Testament, but the Old Testament's in a totally different style. It's also less clear. It's not as well written, that sort of thing. The question, Travis, I have for you that I don't know about this part in our research is what Wycliffe was taking this translation from the Latin? Yes. Okay, now this is a big big issue amongst yes. all these different churches oh, yeah. about whether translation comes from either the uh, uh, the original um which is uh, which well, well, yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah, the Hebrew from, and Greek. Well, yeah, if it comes from the Aramaic aspect, right? If it comes from the Hebrew Greek background, yeah, right, and then translated into Latin before any other languages, exactly, and things this get is, misinterpreted, exactly, and there is there, there is of course that risk. It's like Chinese telephone. Is that what you call it in English? I think so. Yeah, where yeah. where you whisper something in someone's ear, and by the time you get back around, you're like the green cheese, you know, smokes monkeys. Yeah, and you're like what? <laughs> I said, how are you doing? Yeah. You know, and, and you, you have that problem. Sure, I, I would argue that this is, that Latin was just plain gibberish to the common person and that this was, you know, even with some translation errors, probably better than nothing. Um, but yeah, clearly, you know, Martin Luther did a much better job later. Um, and, and, you know, the King James Version is obviously much more famous and, and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, and it's, in fact, yeah, from, from Vulgate Latin. But, sure. Well, you know, Travis, as we're talking about his background, to get to know the man about where he is right now, I want you to walk us through about his early life to see what made this man who he was. So Wycliffe was born in the village of Hipswell in the north riding of Yorkshire, England, in the mid-1320s. His family was from the area. I mean, they're, they're long settled in Yorkshire. 
he had a pretty large extended family kind of centered around Wycliffe on Tees, which would sort of make sense. And that's about 10 miles north of Hipswall. And Wycliffe received his early education close to his home, and it's not exactly known when he first came to Oxford, for which he's also, of course, very famous, and he would be tied to Oxford for the rest of his life. But he was known to have been in Oxford around 1345. Um, I mentioned he had his own influences, absolutely. Let me, let me just quickly say that and this is not something that I'm an expert on, because now we're getting pretty far away from bohemican.com, but uh, Thomas... Bradwardine was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his book on the cause of God against the Pelagians, a bold recovery of sort of Paul Augustine doctrine of basically grace, like, you know, forgiveness and that sort of thing, that would shape Wycliffe's thought. So um, basically, Wycliffe was already having this idea taught to him of a loving, caring God, okay? Not a vengeful, Old Testament, you better, right, yeah, you better yeah. pay up or go to hell kind of God, which is what the priests were often teaching. Okay. Um, in Oxford, at this time, there was a couple of camps, and I don't want to get into all the details, um, specifically regarding Jan Hus, what will become later important in Czech Republic, or sorry, Bohemia at the time, was realism versus kind of nominalism, that sort of thing. And, and the, you have these camps in Oxford, like the Borealis or the Australis nations, like, you know, north-south. Um, Wycliffe belonged to the Borealis. It doesn't matter. One was curi anticurial, one was curial. It, and the point is, um, Wycliffe was into realism, which... Hus was very much into realism. Hus was into realism, and this actually kind of had a resurgence in Bohemia, which is why I wanted to briefly kind of mention this. This is just one more tie between Wycliffe and Hus. In, in Hus, it's very well known, okay, realism had, had a resurgence in Bohemia. Well, this is where that came from. It actually came from Oxford. They were, they were duking it out. And his transition from this scholastic theology to... Um, which, which that's what the clergy went with. That's, that was kind of the, the given of the day. He really switched over, um, especially uh, we, have a, we have a kind of a, a date here, like 1384, where he increasingly argued for scriptures as authoritarian. Not necessarily, because scholastic is more like you're, you're arguing back and forth. You'll try to see two sides of the same issue. You as a philosopher might firmly believe in one side, but you always play devil's advocate. You always give the other side. And Wycliffe was more along the lines of, well, you know what? The Bible's pretty black and white. I mean, it, it says things black and white. We don't need to play devil's advocate because, seriously, that's the devil. If you're going against the Bible, that's actually pretty evil. So why don't we just go ahead and do what the Bible says? Um, so at this point, he really, you know, stopped doing the whole logic thing and, and started to um, just kind of, you know, be a more pure theologian, let's say. I mean, that's a very simplistic way of, of putting it. But... Um, you know, from the scriptures, he said, well, where does it mention the Pope in the scriptures? It doesn't. That's where. Uh, what about monasticism? You know, obviously all those, a lot of those ideas come from Paul and it's in there somehow, but not the way it's implemented, you know? Um, Franciscans perhaps, but, but not some of the other ones. Yeah, so basically he's just saying that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what robe you wear, or what hat you put on, either you're a moral person or you're not, and you should be stripped of that rope. That, that's kind of the point I wanted to make there. And, you know, I, I might as well have been quoting Hoss or Luther. Well, so Travis, you know, looking at Wycliffe's teachings and all the things he's written, one question comes to my mind here is the idea of he's stripping down to the basics of what Christianity should be, 
in the mm-hmm. Catholic Church. Exactly. However, back, back to the basics in a way. You know, and this this kind of looks a little bit like the church was kind of pulling used what it was pulling away uh, in the sense of moving away from the Gnostics in the very earliest part of Christianity. Oh yeah, right where the Gnostics were basically saying there's only a handful of people that can actually rule rule the yeah. church, and and the average person and, can't handle the, this meaning of God. So we're going to do it for you. Yeah, he's actually saying, okay, now we're getting a situation where the average person should have a seat at the table. Right. Yeah, the Gnostics. Exactly. The Gnostics believed in esotericism. Like, it is not It is not for everyone. Not everyone can understand it's it. It's about first century, second century Christians, Yeah, up right? to like third, fourth, right, maybe. Right. The Gnostics were kicked out the door. However, yeah, it is ironic that then, you know, later the Catholics ended up doing very similar things. Saying, no, 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 it needs to be in Latin. You know, that is the language of Rome, which is the language of Pope. Even if, you know, even if um, Jesus spoke Aramaic and Latin... You know, Romans were more like the occupants, the occupiers. But still, yeah, I mean, they, they did take this back to, no, 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 not you're not smart enough to get it. We need to, you know, you can't even read. So, you know, who cares what language it's in? You don't, you can't read anyways. And Wycliffe, exactly. He, he was like, nope, if we translate it to English and put it in front of people, they can make up their own minds. What makes a priest so smart? They're, they're training in a university, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. So this kind of moves us into right now for Wycliffe's life, his, co- his major conflict with the church. As you can see, this was coming like, you know, deer in the headlight situation. There was going to be some, some, some raw feelings here. Uh, theologically, he preached and expressed a strong belief in predestination that enabled him to declare a quote-unquote invisible church of the elect made up of those predestined to be saved rather than the visible Catholic church. Does this sound familiar? Probably should. It has basically been re, uh, regurgitated by almost every reformer since then. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's just saying, look, you, you're, you know, everyone has a personal relationship with God is one way to look at it, or you don't. It doesn't matter what position in life you are or what, again, what robes or hat you're wearing. You, you are either good in the eyes of God and have been forgiven for your sins and therefore you're going to heaven, or you're not. You can be an evil pope and you can be um, a saved Muslim. I mean, it's just, you know, he's just saying it's not about the visible Catholic Church. You know, again, by default, all priests aren't good. It's just, you know, those that are saved are saved and those that aren't aren't. aren't. And so there's no, there's no point in drawing visible lines in the sand. It's just doesn't make any sense. You know, the, fir- the first to oppose these theses were monks, of course, and then these orders that, that held possessions of land Especially and, and, the ones, and treasure, yeah. right? Uh, to whom the theories were very, very dangerous. Sure. Oxford and the Episcopate were later blamed by the Curia, which charged them with so neglecting their duty that, quote, the breaking of the evil fiend into the English ship- sheepfold could, could be noticed in Rome before it was in England. Mm-hmm. All right. So, you know, Travis, again, to give our listeners a, a chance to kind of digest all this theological talk we're talking about tonight on the podcast, um, you know, you, you look at this and you see a guy somewhat trying to deconstruct what was what he feels a failed way of running the church. All right. The Catholics, on the other hand, are saying, OK, yeah, um, yeah, we're doing these certain things that other people are looking into our business. And yeah, if we really put a microscope on, under it, it doesn't fit to what we should be doing. However, there's a reason for some of these pop and circumstances. There's a reason to kind of keep some of these things going because it gives people a, a matter of uh, connecting A to B to C. 
And mm-hmm. if you follow Wycliffe's kind of viewpoint that we all could just have a conversation with God and all those other things, and we don't need church as an mm-hmm. entity, um, all will be right with the world. I think there's a lot of people that would say, no, it would just disappear. Yeah, exactly. And and because Wycliffe is giving the common man power, let's say, like he's saying, you know, the common man can be saved on his own through Jesus, then the, we just said it, you know, it obviously didn't sit right with the wealthy monks, okay? It, it also didn't sit right with the church. It did. Some nobility liked it. Um, and now Wycliffe kind of wanted the, the, the church to actually lose all their land and money and give it to the poor people. That's not what happened. It actually, a lot of it went to the local barons. And so we have this weird political thing where, you know, the church is full, totally against it. The people are generally for it. Again, we're talking about Huss or Luther again, you know. Um, but, but yeah, the church saw this as dangerous, so therefore heretical, simply. And we, we, we have papal bulls, you know, Gregory the, the 11th speaks up, um, who had gone from Avignon to Rome. Um, he, he had like five copies of his bull against Wycliffe dispatched to the Archbishop of Canterbury, but, and, and others in the Bishop of London, King Edward III, the chancellor. But some of these were actually supporting him now. So the king actually, you know, at some point didn't publish these bulls until six months later. This is, this so reminds me of like Wenceslav kind of backing Hus. It's the same. That's why I left all this in there because it is really, you know, we have the same sort of split. Um, You know, he has one king protector, Edward III. Successor Richard II was maybe too young and therefore uh, kind of was more under the influence of the church. Like, you know, right? I I bet you to bring our other podcast that we do, The History of Alchemy, into this. I bet you, dollar to donuts, (laughs) that... In these uh, uh, ruling households, in these in these calf, in, in these uh, castles, that these kings and potentates all had an alchemist at their side, reading the tea leaves or the cards or or the stars to tell them which horse to back. All right, Could because be. because yeah. I'm looking at this and saying, you I'm, know what, I, I you know you the, your people say this. There's a chance that Wycliffe is right, and there's a chance the church is going to give stuff back. You better back the right horse. Exactly. You have to think that at some point it's not about faith at all. It's just about money. It's just about power and political struggle. Yeah, so, yeah. so you're going to fall on sides depending on whether you're going to make money or lose money or, you know, sure. I mean, there is that there is that part of it. Um, in fact, Wycliffe, but he really did believe in secular power being able to. And so that's the thing. So uh, he thought that he would actually gain support from the government. He actually went to parliament and, and laid out his thesis. Now the the that didn't go quite as much as uh, quite as well as he expected, but it is interesting to note that yeah he laid his thesis before the parliament, thinking yeah the parliament would back them because he's saying the separation of church and state. In fact, um, yeah he brought out some really interesting key points here. For instance, Travis, the excommunicated should be able to appeal to the state. In his writing, he laid open the entire case and in such a way that it was understood by the laity. He wrote his 33 conclusions in Latin and in English so that the masses, uh, some of course were nobility, uh, and, uh, and his former protectorate, John of Gaunt, uh, relied on him for this information. Before any further steps could be taken in Rome, Gregory XI died in 1378. But Wycliffe was already engaged in one of the most important works that dealing with what he perceived as the truth of the Holy Scriptures. Here are several points on those. At this point, we really see the influence of Hughes. 
The Bible, as a sole authority of Christianity, and again, every reformer in some degree since believed yeah. in this. Yeah. In fact, this is a slippery slope. So if you can read the Bible yourself and you can um, interpret what that means to you, remember the Taborites? Naked, uh, naked <laughs> preaching and, oh, we don't believe in marriage anymore because uh, in the Garden of Eden there wasn't marriage. And then if you guys, so you, yeah, you can go down some deep cultish rabbit holes there if this is taken too far. So for one, take a look at our episode on that. But if you want a really great example of this, this cannot be overstated. You guys all know Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, right? If you, so you can just look up the Munster Rebellion. It's actually Munster, the Munster Rebellion. Dan Carlin's episode is called The Prophets of Doom. You get a really good picture of what happens. Again, naked, naked worshiping and uh, cult leader type peoples, and you know miracles that aren't really miracles, and and all that stuff. So again, this is you know that is a slippery slope. There's all kinds of there's countless examples throughout history, but sure, this is this is one of the things they argued for is that we don't need a priest to tell us this or that. We can read it ourselves. And we can see the church saying, see, I told you so. <laughs> this yeah, is what happens sure. when, you, when yep. you let people have too much freedom, right? Uh, that was their viewpoint, I'm sure. Well, that goes to our second bullet point, which is the church itself, or the church herself, as we're talking about the Catholic Church. Uh, it includes the church triumphant in heaven, um, those in purgatory, and the church militant or men on the earth. No one who is eternally lost has a part in it. There is one universal church, which... That's what Catholic yep. means. Yep. Uh, and outside of it, there is no salvation. Its head is Christ and Christ alone. No pope may say that he is the head of the church or cannot say that he is the elect or even a member of the church. It would be a mistake to assume that Wycliffe's doctrine of the church, which made so great an impression upon the famous priest Jan Hus, was occasioned by the Western schism uh, that we that happens in, in 1378 yeah. to 1417, the great schism. Yeah, it's it's kind of... So basically, it's kind of a coincidence that it happened at the same time. There, there's not a direct. There were a lot of other there. things going on at that. Point. Yeah, there was. Right. Yeah, there's anti popes and all kinds of great stuff. Um, well, great as as in they're interesting and for history, not sure. great at the time, I'm sure. But yeah, exactly. So so no, it, this often gets kind of confused and mixed in with that. But no, this wasn't a political thing. The interesting thing is, yeah, again, remember he said one universal church. You just mentioned that's what Catholicism means. This makes him a reformer, even if he's not kind of called by that. He, he's just saying, look, we see the church as this circle, but really it's this circle over here, and it, now it actually looks like a Venn diagram. There might be some people in the Catholic Church that are really holy, but th th that's not that way by default, okay? The Pope can't even claim he's a Christian, and people shouldn't believe him just because the Pope says so. He, you, anybody can lie, right? So, I mean, he was kind of saying, like, just because the guy wears a fancy hat, you know, means nothing. You, Christ is the head of the church. But, absolutely, he did not want the church to split. He, we, you know, we can look through history, Travis, and not only go with the theologians and reformers uh, and say, you know what, really what Jan Hus believed, or really what Wycliffe believed, or really what Martin Luther believed— um, if your followers do something else and take your name and put a you know a, a Lutheran behind it or put mm -hmm. a, a, you know or put a a Husite uh, in front of their names of their armies, that that message could get uh, you know distorted and change quite a bit. So you know you got to be kind of careful about thinking like you said 
the the origin of this information can be very different than what later history will show its impact upon uh, as far as what happens later on because those those messages do get uh, convoluted at, at times. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of important to note that he did because there might be some folks out there, some listeners out there that are like, well, wait a minute. He did say some pretty harsh things here and there, and it wasn't necessarily well. Yeah, so later in life he did kind of. Um, speak out stronger and stronger against the Pope. I mean, that he, that kind of ended up being centered on his, okay, this is what's wrong with the church, it's the Pope, that kind of thing. And and he also really, like you just said, he wanted excommunicated people to have a right to appeal to the king, which, you know, even, as, even though he's not a religious thing. And we just kind of see this uh, more and more, I don't want to say radical view, but more and more stronger view in one direction, which is, kind of anti-papal, and even identifying the papacy with anti-Christianity is like saying he's the antichrist, basically. He even, he, he did back this or that pope because it was during the schism. Like he, he tried to actually get, the, get Urban VI recognized, um, who was the last pope to be elected outside of the order of cardinals, for instance. So we do see, you know, some kind of, I wouldn't say political maneuvering, but it is trying to get the right person in the right position to kind of, you know, stop this and give the the king some veto power over the church and especially take away the possessions of of you know the the rich monks let's say the the, the wealthy monasteries and he just you know it's just more and more he just strictly says our pope is christ our you know he starts um you know the church can exist without a visible leader that these, these are all protestant like cornerstones right along with this we really start to see a push against monasticism. Now he was not against monasticism by default. He just kind of part of it was he didn't quite see um, where the authority came from from the Bible, other than maybe Paul. But it's just not you know Paul was very clear that yeah this is great, but you don't have to do this kind of thing. And but there weren't only rich monks, right? So we do have the Minorites, basically Franciscans. Um, starting in like 17, uh, sorry, starting in 1377, that actually defended him because they had a very strict vow of poverty. So they were like, yeah, you know what? That's that part is true. All monks should be like that. We don't want those fat friars walking around. I can see that. I can see. Right. So know, for Franciscans, Saint Francis was took that vow exactly. of poverty. Lived in a cave. Yep. And that's why. <laughs> yeah. So they took yeah. uh, Augustine and Francis, and he, a lot of his. Pre- um, again, so it's. You know, this did not come out of a vacuum. I don't want to say Wycliffe had all these great ideas. No, we have, you know, saints in the Catholic Church saying very similar things. So Wycliffe aimed to do away with the existing hierarchy and replace it with a, quote-unquote, poor priests who lived in poverty. The Franciscans, as as it were. We talked about that as a... As a not a, necessarily, but yes. Yeah, that was as part of the, yeah. the, the archetype he wanted to shoot exactly. for, right? Uh, they were bound to no vows. He, re, he had received no formal consecration and preached the gospel to the people. These inherent preachers spread the teaching of Wycliffe. Two by two they went, barefoot, wearing long, dark red robes, and carrying a staff in the hand, and later having symbolic reference to their pastoral calling, mm-hmm. just like managing yep, the shepherds, sheep, right? Exactly. exactly. Um, and passed from one place to, uh, to another place, preaching the sovereignty of God. The bull of, Peg- of Gregory the the Eleventh impressed upon them the name of the Lollards, intended as an insult, but it became to them a name of honor. Right? Even in Wycliffe's time, the Lollards had reached wide circles in England and preached quote God's law without which no one could be justified. Unquote. Yeah. So, and 
I think that's honorable. You got these really poor people going around and um, I wonder if they're going door to door and asking if they have a minute, but, but they're going around in, in the stat with their staffs and they're, you know, going from town to town preaching that, you know, against material wealth, uh, against worldly, worldly material wealth, let's say. And, you know, just kind of just, just preaching the Bible. No, no, no doctrine or this, just, you know, saying, saying what the Bible says, basically. So we're talking late 14th century mm-hmm. England, mm-hmm. where we have landowners that are connected to the king's whim, you know, mm-hmm. in connection with the king of the realm. Uh, and uh, a lot of people that are serfs and basically working the land that don't have the money. So basically the Lollards are probably going to those folks first for the easy sell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, yeah, sure. It is. Yep. The peasants would definitely lend an ear to something like that. Yeah. Just like you said, it, it spread so much that we have a we have a quote here that basically someone um, contemporary to the time says, every second man that you meet is a Lollard. So it actually becomes so common. Um, and just like you would say in, in Bohemia, basically every person you meet was a Hussite after. And in, in Prussia and northern Germany, every person you meet was a Lutheran. In fact, you know, I mentioned before that to be Prussian in, in Bismarck's day was to be Lutheran. So to be Lutheran was to be German. That's a different way of putting it. It was one and the same. And this is kind of like that, like just the whole countryside just just went in a frenzy and kind of, you know, so like he, this is probably an exaggeration, obviously, but it says every second man you meet is a Lollard. Then in the midst of all of this comes the Peasant Revolt of 1381. Now, Wycliffe disapproved of the revolt, but he was blamed. This is slightly different. I mean, the Hussites did horrible things after Huss's death. The Lutherans did horrible things after Luther's death. Um, Huss and Luther were both rolling in their graves. So Wycliffe was blamed for this in his lifetime. But um, again, yeah, it was, it was kind of weird because some of like John of Gaunt, who was his supporter, was actually the most hated by the rebels. So, I mean, it clearly wasn't, you know, there was, it, it, it's not clear cut. It's not black and white. You can't say Wycliffe was um, the, the instigator of the revolt or the peasants revolted because of Wycliffe's teaching. But that is how it was spun, right? So as everything happens to a person of, of influential status after they pass away and, 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 and history kind of moves on, we start blaming that person or maybe that belief system on that, uh, that situation in history, he right? He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Exactly. Wycliffe's old enemy, William Courtney, now Archbishop of Canterbury, called in, in 1382 an ecclesiastical assembly of, not- of notables in London. During the consultations on the 21st of May, an earthquake occurred of all things, and the participants were terrified and wished to break up the assembly. But Courtney declared the earthquake a favorable sign, which meant that the the purification of the earth from the erroneous doctrine and the result of the earthquake synod was assured. Uh, Of the 24 propositions attributed to Wycliffe without mentioning his name, 10 were declared heretical and 14 erroneous. Pretty much destroyed it right then off, off the bat. The former had reference to the transformation of the sacrament, the latter to matters of church order and institutions. It was forbidden from that time to hold these opinions or to advance them in sermons or in academic discussions. They were forbade. Mm-hmm. All persons disregarding this order were to be subject to prosecution. To accomplish this, the help of the state was necessary, but the commons rejected the bill. The king, however, had a decree issued which permitted the arrest of those in error. 
the citadel of the reformatory movement was Oxford, where Wycliffe's most attractive helpers were. These were laid under the ban of the summoned to recant, and Nicholas of Hereford went to Rome to appeal. In similar fashion, the poor priests, the Lulards, as they are called now, were hindered in their work. On the 17th of November, 1382, Wycliffe was summoned before the Synod in Oxford. He still commanded the favor of the court and of the parliament, to which he addressed a memorial. He was neither excommunicated then nor deprived of his living, so he seemed to get out of it unscathed. Have you ever heard of uh, lolly, lollygagging? Because we talked about the lollards. Are you saying that lollygagging is part of this? Yeah. Which is basically to, to, you, to laze around, right? You want, the, uh, you want the etymology of that? Let's get it. What do you got? So <laughs> this, is, this is a quote from what um, – it's not etymology.com, but it's one of those places – then, okay, so the, this is a quote. I got this from somewhere. The name was derived by con- contemporaries from lolium, a tear, but it has been used in Flanders early in the 14th century in the sense of hypocrite. And the phrase lolardi su deum laudantes, 1309, points to a derivation from lolen, to sing softly, like a lullaby, okay, like lol in English. Others take it to mean idlers and connect it to, to lol, we first hear it. We first hear of it referring to the Wycliffe fight in 1382, when the Cistercian Henry Crump applied the nickname to them in public at Oxford. So now you can so, see. Yeah, they're just lazy sitting around because they're hippies. Yeah, they're yeah they're they're, they're walking door to door. They're not they're not working for a living. They're poor. And right? so and so as we said before, they took it as a badge of honor to say yes, yeah. we're proudly called Lawlers. Exactly. And uh, that, well, we love the name, even though it was given to them as a derogatory term. Yeah. All right. It's like Jesus wasn't rich, right? (laughs) And Travis, we mentioned that right now Wycliffe gets somewhat unscathed out of this situation. He's not excommunicated. He's not deprived of his living. But what happens in his last days? There's even some parallels with Hus here. But um, he he returned to Lutterworth, sent out tracts against the monks and also Urban VI. I, I was supporting Urban VI like a couple minutes ago. Well, contrary to Wycliffe's hope, he had not turned out to be a reforming hope that everyone, or, or he had not turned out to be a reforming pope that everyone hoped he would be. There was a crusade in Flanders um, that, you know, again, the reformers really didn't, really didn't like. So his sermons became kind of, I don't want to say radicalized, but yeah, they, they did become more and more extreme in, in what he saw as kind of the imperfections of the church. In his last days, he wrote that the Triologus kind of stood at the, the peak of the knowledge of his day. His last work, the Opus Evangelium, the last part of which he kind of named in characteristic fashion of Antichrist, that, that wasn't even completed. Because basically, while he was saying Mass in the parish church on Holy Innocence Day, 28th of December, 1384, he suffered a stroke and died as the year ended. Now, here's the thing. He was not burned as a heretic. He was not tried as a heretic. The 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 company, the kings and the parliament and various bishops in his lifetime would invite him in to go ahead and you know say what he wants to say or explain his viewpoints. But it wasn't like in the Hussite way that he was just told to recant and stop doing that. It probably had he not died of a stroke, probably gone that way. In the decades after Wycliffe's death, his teachings spread by Jan Hus, who translated the Trilogus, remained controversial. 
The anti-Wycliffe statute of 1401 extended persecution of Wycliffe's remaining followers. The Constitution of Oxford in 1408 aimed to reclaim the authority in all ecclesiastical matters and specifically named John Wycliffe as it banned certain writings and noted that translation of the scripture into English by unlicensed laity is a crime punished by charges of heresy. Now, now this is what, like 30 years after his, his death? Now, wait a minute. Why, huh, why would the church suddenly take notice of Wycliffe 30 years after his death? Wait a minute. Who came on the scene? 1408? Yeah. Huh, that kind of time period sounds awfully familiar. Heretics because of Jan Hus. Yeah, so... Right? So this is where the, this is where the focus comes in on Bohemia and once again, so our this, full circle of the program. Yeah, exactly. So um, in a way, even though Wycliffe was already dead... Hus had a very strong influence on Wycliffe's remains. The Council of Constance declared Wycliffe a heretic on the 4th of May, 1415, and banned his writings. The council decreed that Wycliffe's work should be burned and his remains exhumed. In six, on the 6th of July, 14... This does sound like Alexander... Dude. This does sound like Cromwell to you. We're well, going to exhume him and then... And put and, him in front of a trial? Exactly. 1415 <laughs> is about, what, four years before the Hussite rebellions. Right. Okay? This, it's, it's all coming together. So it actually came full circle. They're like, not only is Hus a heretic, but his the guy that he got all this information from was. It, so they banned the Wycliffean teachings in Bohemia and then said, wait a minute... It's going crazy in, in England, right? So it actually came back. So the, the influence actually went both ways. So by midsummer of 1415, it also declared that Hughes was a heretic, defrocked him, and had him burned at the stake. Hughes' followers were soon rebelled, while the Hussite Wars lasted between 1419 and 1434, a huge mm -hmm. uh, amount of time. The Hussite movement spread throughout Middle Europe. In 1428, at Pope Martin V's command for a posthumous execution, Posthumous execution. I'll so say look, that again. Basically, in the middle, yeah, in the middle of, I know that doesn't even. It doesn't, not, yeah, I know. But in the <laughs> middle of the Hussite Wars is when this happened. Sure, it that's was a why, show trial. That's why uh, you're welcome, History of England listeners. If you just hear about Wycliffe, you don't have the whole story. Wycliffe was declared a heretic because of Huss. So we're going backwards. Exactly. In a sense, so right? who influenced who? Well, I mean, Wycliffe was already dead, so he personally wasn't influenced very much. But yeah, they. So what the point we're a trying to make is that, is, that, execution. is that Hughes and Wycliffe are joined forever because of this connection. So Wycliffe's corpse was exhumed and burned at the, in ashes, cast onto the River Swift, which flows through Littleworth. Mm -hmm. All right? So like, no, actually, maybe it wasn't so good we buried the guy that died of a stroke. No, no, no. We're, we no, got, no, we no. got to burn this heretic and We're make a gonna point. We're going to burn him as a heretic anyways. Right, right. So none of Wycliffe's contemporaries left a complete picture of this person, his life or his activities. Paintings that represented Wycliffe are from a later period, of course, mm -hmm. and the history of the trial of William Thorpe in 1407, Wycliffe appears wasted and physically weak. Thorpe says Wycliffe was the unblemished walk in life and regarded affectionately by people of rank who often consorted with him, took down his sayings and clung to them. Quote, I need clove to none closer than to him, the wisest and most blessed of all men whom I have ever found. From him, one could learn the truth, what the Church of Christ is now, and how it should be ruled and led. It's pretty yeah. heavy sentiment, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So we, that, that's the weird thing. We don't. So Martin Luther, as this was happening, this is like 200 years later, and all his followers, Luther would be sitting at a table and just be talking, and there were chroniclers writing every word down. 
So even after his death, they could still, and we have the printing press, so they printed all this stuff and we know so much more. And it's not all good. You know, we brought up uh, Martin Luther, the anti-Semite, a couple times. And um, that was very he, bad. He was a bit and, frigid sexually. Another issue on that sure. too. Well, he so married, he, had, he married he had a nun. How yeah. good? So the, he had the, problems. Yeah. So the <laughs> thing is, but in, in so we don't want to we don't want to put anybody on a pedestal ever. Okay. But Wycliffe, um, again, we don't know that much about his his personal life and. And he seems to have some, you know, anti-corruption policies in place and, you know, church and state separation and, and even some, some basic human rights for, for believers that if you're excommunicated, you can appeal that to a secular authority, right? So there's interesting things there. Those all seem to be good. Um, even if you are a Catholic, you don't want corruption in the Catholic Church. So, you know, you wouldn't want to disagree with that kind of thing. But we don't know a lot about it. He didn't have those chroniclers writing down his every word, right? So that's just something I would like to note. Uh, so Wycliffe is venerated, if, if you're wondering, on the 31st of December, 30th of December in the Anglican Church of Canada, Episcopal Church in USA on October 30th. But if you don't want to wait a full year between venerations, then you're in luck because Huss's falls on July 6th. We got the Moravian Church, July 6th. We got Jan Hus Day on uh, the 6th of July, which is, you know, Hus's martyrdom. That's here in the Czech Republic, actually. That's a holiday. In the U.S., we have a feast day of the, uh, in the Episcopal Church in the Evan Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. He's, you know, he's on the calendar of saints. If, if basically, to summarize all this, okay, if we bring it back to Hus, here's the, here's the influence on Hus in, in three sentences. Wycliffe's doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Oh, and here I wrote it down. Consubstantiation rather than transubstantiation. There you go. State as authority, Bible as real soul authority, but kings rule by God's will. Therefore, state also needs to have authority. Get rid of the corruption of the church. A private declaration of, of faith rather than one in front of a priest, so forth. And translating the Bible making it available to the common man. Of course, I also just described Martin Luther, okay? Now, anyway, I hope we were able to pro provide both the listeners of the History of England podcast as well as the listeners of the Bohemian podcast a much better picture of the two because I'm um, like, you know, obviously that it, hopefully it's now apparent that you can't really have one without the other. You can't even have Wycliffe without Jan Hus because of the, the post-mortem exhumation. But um, if you want to hear about that, if you want to hear about all the other stuff we do, we now have one big umbrella website called podcastnik.com. That's kind of, think of Sputnik, basically. It's <laughs> podcastnik.com. It is the same. It's just Slavic for podcaster. <laughs> Um, yeah, podcastneek.com, and there you can find links to bohemican.com. Of course, you can go there directly. There's History of Alchemy, uh, Secret Cabinet, History of Germany. And in fact, if, you're in, if you liked this episode, there's going to be a whole Reformation miniseries when I get that far chronologically. And I'll probably refer back to this. I'll probably refer to the Bohemian episodes on Jan Hus when I talk about Martin Luther and, and that sort of thing. Um, again, there's, there's even, we did a guest show on Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation podcast. There's more there. Meanwhile, if you want to hear, I, I interviewed a curator of the Luther House in Wittenberg regarding Martin Luther actually hanging up the 95 Theses. It's just kind of a neat little 10-minute trivia show on that. So if, if this is your cup of tea, then you, you definitely probably like that one. 
Okay, and that's right, Travis. And as far as Bohemican.com is concerned, we'll be touching a lot on the Hughesite Wars this year in 2015, and kind of going through uh, the burning, the anniversary, the 600th anniversary is this year of the burning of of Jan Hus. So uh, we'll be talking about that uh, in more detail as the year progresses, and we'll see uh, we'll see hopefully on the, our, either our YouTube channel. Uh, for a Bohemican podcast or back at, at, at Bohemican.com. You can always get our, our uh, episodes for free off of iTunes. So uh, we want to thank you all for listening tonight. We'll be back with you very soon. So until then, for Travis Dow, I'm Pete Coleman. Nascladano. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.